Please listen carefully. Welcome to the week that was at Global Voices, the podcast where we bring you the most important and compelling stories you haven't heard from the Global Voices newsroom. I'm your co-host, Lauren, news editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. And I'm your co-host, Sahar, managing editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco. Global Voices isn't like other news outlets. We are a largely volunteer, multilingual network of passionate people around the world. We tell stories about our communities that aren't being told or are being told poorly or misleadingly in mainstream media. We've been building these bridges of understanding, as we like to call them, through our digital reporting since 2005. The Week That Was podcast takes a look at some of the stories that we've published recently on Global Voices. This week, we'll take you to Ecuador, Uganda, Bangladesh, Ukraine, and Pakistan. On that last one, we'll speak to Global Voices Pakistan editor Sana Salim about Zenit Shazadi, a journalist who has been missing there for nine months. Here's a sneak peek. Unfortunately, not a lot of Pakistanis are aware of this, that case, and we don't even know enough details about the case. We do know that she was picked up on her way to work. We do know that her family alleges that she was threatened by security agencies. We do know that she was working on a case of a missing person, an Indian citizen, but we do not have any other details. But before that, we're off to Ecuador, the capital Quito to be specific where residents can't stop talking about orange juice on social media. Our contributor, Juan Ariano, brought us the story. Quito is home to many informal street stands where vendors sell refreshing, fresh-pressed orange juice. The vendors were recently targeted by the food police. The city's health ministry tested 35 samples of informal orange juice for sale in Quito and found that 32% didn't meet their standards for human consumption. Their tests discovered harmful bacteria and other microorganisms in the juice. The ministry officially recommended that people avoid drinking street juice, or at least make sure the vendor does everything in a sanitary way. This news turned out to be the perfect prompt for Quitenios to show off their sense of humor. People shared memes that read, I survived orange juice and Jusli orange juice. Many boasted that they had survived much worse things, including bootleg liquor, ill-advised cocktails, and ceviche made on the street. Ceviche, for those who haven't had the pleasure, and it is an absolute pleasure, I really, really recommend it if you haven't ever tried it, it's delicious. It's a dish made with raw fish, which is cured with lemon or lime juice and seasoned with things like salt, onion, and cilantro. Because there's a risk of foodborne illness with raw fish, it's a recipe that needs to be made with a certain level of care. Others connected the supposed danger of orange juice to other problems that Ecuador is experiencing, like the current economic downturn. One Twitter user wrote, Buy orange juice from the young guy in the corner, and then medicine at the neighborhood pharmacy, reactivate the economy, everyone's happy. Not everyone found the health ministry's study funny. Some criticized the government for speaking ill about these businesses instead of helping them, especially so soon after an earthquake devastated the country's coast. One woman wrote, In the middle of an economic recession and a national disaster, 
There are those who wish to attack these enterprises without first complimenting them and even giving them ideas for improvement. She continued, Remember that when we buy orange juice, we support families from Quito, families from the coast who plant and harvest oranges. Others thought the warning against drinking street orange juice sends a poor nutritional message. Don't fall for it, one meme read. Sugary drinks are more dangerous than street orange juice. It's unclear if Quito's orange juice vendors experienced any dip in sales after the health ministry's report. But at least they can say they have their own hashtag now. Want to read more about the stories we mentioned in this podcast? You'll find them and more on our website, globalvoices.org, on Twitter, at Global Voices, and on facebook.com slash globalvoicesonline. Now on to Uganda, where Facebook and Twitter weren't buzzing as much as they were in Quito. That's because the country's communications authority blocked everyone's access to social media for a few days. Global Voices contributor James Propa was on the story. The blackout began on the evening of May 11th, one day before President Yuwari Museveni was sworn in for his controversial fifth term in office. Museveni has been in power since 1986, and in February he won elections again with more than 60% of the vote. The country's political opposition claims that the poll was rigged. They have been challenging the president's victory with a series of protests they've dubbed the Defiance Campaign. Social media has played a key role in the movement's organization, especially since many of the opposition leaders have been arrested multiple times since the election and put under house arrest. In fact, Lauren, Leading up to Museveni's inauguration, opposition leader Kiza Bisege was arrested yet again. Bisege took 35% of the votes in February. He was arrested as he was headed to the capital, Kampala, to be sworn in by his party in an alternative ceremony. That was the day authorities blocked social media access, citing security reasons. Some Ugandans were able to circumvent the shutdown by using virtual private networks known as VPNs. Those who are less tech-savvy were locked out. The State House of Uganda, however, didn't seem to have an issue getting around the block. The State House is the official residence of the president, and its Facebook account posted photos of African leaders arriving to attend the president's inauguration well after the social media blackout began. As one Facebook user commented, This is laughable indeed. I wonder who you expect to read this since you ordered the shutdown of social media. Access to social media was finally restored after a few days. Currently, Ugandans are able to get onto Facebook and Twitter normally. But this is the second time in so many months that their government has flipped the switch on their access. Ugandans were also denied social media for four days during the February elections. This is, unfortunately, starting to look like a trend and that doesn't bode well for freedom of expression in Uganda. Are you enjoying this podcast? We sure hope you are. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Subscribe, give us an upvote, or drop us a comment. And if we don't appear on your favorite podcast app, let us know. Lauren, let's swing over to Bangladesh 
where a certain fictional spy is turning 50 years old this month. Do you know who he is? I'll give you a few hints. He's an ex-military major who now works for the country's intelligence services. Hmm. He's a man who travels the world on secret missions and goes by your short and catchy codename. Any ideas yet? He's a suave womanizer who never settles down. You may have guessed James Bond, but you're wrong. It's Masood Rana, codename MR9, the most popular spy character of the few to be found in Bengali literature. Our contributor, Pantaraman Raza, wants to make sure our readers wish this international man of mystery a happy birthday. Masood Rana is the creation of renowned author Kazi Anwar Hussain. The character first appeared in 1966 in the book The Mountain of Destruction and has since starred in more than 400 books and a number of movies and TV shows. Bangladeshis aren't blind to the similarities between Masood Rana and that very famous agent who goes by the codename 007. Hussein liberally borrowed plot lines from popular Western spy thrillers at the start of the Masood Rana series. In fact, Masood Rana is lovingly known as the Bengali version of James Bond among fans. But at the same time, the books catered to Bengali-speaking young people, especially generations who grew up in the 1970s and 80s, when there were few entertainment alternatives in an era that predated video games, cable TV, Western books, and the internet. Masood Rana has a devoted following. Young people love the action and adventure of the stories, for adults, the series is full of nostalgia. On Facebook, fans have reminisced about their relationship with the books over the years. One man wrote, Back in those days, I didn't have much extra money to spend. It was extremely difficult to buy books. The extent of that difficulty can hardly be explained in a few words. I used to skip meals to save money so that I could buy Masood Bana books. I also used to walk for miles so that I could save on rickshaw fare. Ah, those were the days, full of bittersweet memories. Another said, being a longtime reader of Masood Rana, I used to think that I was unstoppable. Mr. Kazi Anwar Hassan taught me how to use firearms, how to jump from a plane with a parachute, how to scuba dive, and he taught me all this through Masood Rana. Not all Bengali families welcome Masood Rana into their household, however. The series has faced criticism due to the sexually explicit content in some books. But Masood Rana's most dedicated fans credit the series with opening their imagination. As one Facebook user explained, I know that today's generation of teens don't read Masood Rana. They prefer the novels of American writers Sidney Sheldon or Robert Ludlum instead. I know they would just throw away Masood Rana books as inferior. But for the 90s kids like me, Rana and Kazi Anwar Hussein are legends. I am indebted to them as they showed the world to me through those books. On to Ukraine, where the controversial activist site Mirotvorets, also known as the Peacemaker, is at it again. They released a list of what they call the 7,901 scoundrels. The list has prompted condemnation from Ukrainian journalists and media organizations around the world. This story was brought to us by Global Voices contributor Eric Toller and Tatiana Loka, who is an editor with our special project, Runet Echo, which covers the Russian-speaking web. 
the spreadsheet-like list appears to show the names and personal details of thousands of journalists who have received accreditation to report in the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic. That's an area that we've been hearing a lot about in the news. It's in Ukraine's east and is fighting to break away from the rest of the country. Lauren, could you explain why this list is controversial? Well, after publishing the list, Mirat Voritz explained their reasoning for doing so. Quote, Today, this list of journalists is in our hands. We don't know what consequences will come after the publication of this list, but we know this for sure. It is necessary to publish this list because these journalists are cooperating with the militants of a terrorist organization. The Mirat Voritz activists made these allegations without presenting any specific proof. They also made several strange observations about the list of reporters. For instance, the activists wondered why non-Russian outlets like CNN, BBC, or AFP had journalists with Russian names. They also reasoned that because many of the accredited foreign journalists had Ukrainian phone numbers, this somehow pointed to their crossing the border into occupied territories illegally from Russia and not from Ukraine. It remains unclear how the activists arrived at these conclusions or what information they have to support such claims. Mirotvorets bills itself as the Center for Research of Signs of Crimes Against the National Security of Ukraine, Peace, Humanity, and International Law. The site is allegedly run by volunteer activists and publishes the personal information, also known as doxing, of individuals that they deem are working against the interests of Ukraine, or what they call the peaceful world. In the past, they've published information on Russian soldiers and volunteers fighting in the Donbas and Russian fighter pilots in Syria, including information on their families. It's no surprise then that the Russian foreign ministry isn't happy about this latest list that the group has published. Journalists aren't happy either. Ian Bateson, an independent reporter based in Ukraine, explained his frustration with the leak. This list reduces all journalism to propaganda. It assumes writing about separatist-controlled eastern Ukraine is somehow supporting the groups that have seized control of it, which is a view that has no place in democratic Ukraine. He continued, Foreign journalists have played a key role in publicizing information about what was going on in eastern Ukraine, because we were the only ones who could get in. We put our lives on the line to do that, and now, as repayment, get labeled as collaborators with our personal details shared for all to see. Journalism has never been so thankless. Finally, we are headed to Pakistan. Freelance reporter Zenit Shahzadi has been missing for nine months. She was abducted while on the street in the city of Lahore. Her family says it was Pakistani security agents who took her. Disappearances are not unheard in some trouble spots in Pakistan, but disappearances of women are rare. The security state is accused of committing human rights violations under the guise of counter-terrorism. Global Voices Pakistan editor Sana Salim is here with us to tell us more. Sana, could you tell us a little bit more about the circumstances surrounding Zina Shahzadi's disappearance? Shahzadi is a, was a freelance journalist. She was 24 at the time of her abduction. And the last story that she had been working on was the case of an Indian um, citizen, Hamid Ansari, who unfortunately, ironically, was also missing in Pakistan since November 2012. So Shahzadi took it upon herself to not only report the case, but also um, take it to court and investigate the family. And due to her 
reporting, Ansari was found and security agencies that had earlier stated that they did not know uh, who Ansari was and that he was not in his custody had to admit that they had him in custody and then sent him to trial um, and he was court-martialed. It was shortly after that story that um, Shazadi was picked up from Lahore while on her way to work. There have been many others who have gone missing like Zina, right? We've had a very, we, uh, by we I mean Pakistan. Pakistan has had a very abysmal record in terms of uh, missing people. Between 2009-2015, according to Human Rights Watch, we've had over 4,500 people who've been victims of enforced disappearances and whose bodies have been recovered. So most people who are disappear end up dead. Others that are recovered are not released. They go through several processes, long delayed legal processes of, um, you know, accusations that are not really proven. But we've never had a case of, of a woman and that to a prominent woman journalist or a woman journalist in the public eye who's gone missing like that. So Shazadi is the first one. And most of these disappearances have um, been in uh, Pakistan's trouble spot, Balochistan. It's very rare to see something like this happening in, in a main city like Lahore. Yeah, an uh, incredible number of amount of uh, disappearances have happened in Balochistan because of the ongoing insurgency and the, the trouble with the intelligence agencies. And most of the deaths have also happened in the province of Balochistan. Uh, it's it's not there haven't been many reports of missing people uh, in urban cities, especially the city of Lahore. And again, of a woman. So what kind of coverage has this story gotten in the media in Pakistan? Zinat Chazadi was a freelance journalist. And as we know, freelance journalists, um, sometimes they kind of fall away from the cover of mainstream media coverage. Has this been the case in Pakistan? Yeah, uh, unfortunately so. It's been, I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely sure if it's just because uh, she was a freelance journalist, but you are right. If she was a reporter for a media channel, the media channel would have taken it upon themselves to report the case, and then other media channels would have to be forced to do to it as well, or would do it as well. But Dina's case has been very much absent from mainstream media. Um, Sabah Etizad, uh, a brilliant reporter for the BBC, has been the, uh, one of the prominent journalists and the only one who actually broke the story and kept at it. So after she reported the story, a lot of uh, media picked it up, but it's mostly been printed online. Uh, there hasn't been much coverage on TV. And uh, I'm, I'm saying that because the majority of the people in Pakistan get their news from radio or television. So it's Shazadi's story is not in every household. It's very limited to readers that are reading online and or paper. Does that mean that a lot of Pakistanis aren't aware of the case? Yeah, I would say so. Not, unfortunately, not a lot of Pakistanis are aware of this, that case. And we don't even know enough details about the case, even nine months after. We do know that she was picked up on her way to work. We do know that her family alleges that she was threatened by security agencies. We do know that she was working on a case of a missing person, an Indian citizen, but we do not have any other details. And um, it is baffling because this is the first time a case of a young woman. We've heard stories of women going missing. It's mostly, as uh, Sahar mentioned earlier, it's mostly from the troubled areas of Balochistan. And because news from Balochistan is always so scattered and rare, we don't have much reporters reporting on the issue. We don't get to hear the stories of the names of a lot of missing women. And Shahzadi's name is known. Her parents are known. Um, they still live in, a, in an urban city of Lahore. And to not know where she is now, to have no coverage, uh, to have no idea what has happened to her, a uh, reporter or journalist, that is very baffling and unfortunate.
and you know there've been some you know online if you kind of follow her story and see the trolls operating there's been a lot of effort to kind of discount um there's already so many missing details in the story but even to pull apart the ones that exist like or oh, was she even a journalist how do we see this playing out what do you think like when when you kind of see those reactions do you see oh deja vu this happens every time there's like a questionable story involving the security state so two things first uh, i think the first part of the reaction is def- is because uh, it's victim blaming it's a woman a woman who's gone missing a woman who's also writing the story unfortunately um and when women come out and talk about stories of abduction of rape of violence they're always uh, they're always attacked online this is how troll trolls functions unfortunately and especially if it's an also if it's an investigative story done by a woman of course what does she know how can she report on something it's an investigative story it's supposed to be done by hardcore male crime journalists so she must have gotten her facts wrong so part of the hatred um that the reporter in case is also uh, facing is because of that the misogynist trolls and yeah the second phase is the misogynist trolls and the trolls that come out of out of the woodworks as soon as uh, the security state is mentioned i know this is a phenomena that gv has also touched up before it's it's sort of like a phenomena where we feel that a lot of the political parties but also the security state have its own trolls and they they're very very vicious the first thing that they attack is the credibility of a journalist the credibility of the story what's dangerous is when they uh, equate the release of a story or even the fact that the cl- the story clearly says that the family has alleged this and this is what has happened in the past where security agencies have been known to pick up people or have allegedly picked up people so uh, the accusation that just by mere mentioning of what has happened or mere mentioning of statistics the reporter is being a traitor is giving pakistan a bad name is um you know um it, you know shutting down the morale of the soldiers that are on the forefront getting killed and has no respect for the martyrs these are the kind of things that people uh, spew online and usually what happens is these are people with like random photographs i often know display pictures and then they seem to have like a viral effect of sorts within their community of trolls where same kind of hatred and same kind of misogyny and accusations are spewed on beyond the trolls and the hatred being spewed online for pakistanis who do know about the case what are they saying about it so a lot of people are very shocked um i saw the reactions when the story was also first reported and then 9 months later unfortunately what happens is in pakistan we have over two uh, dozen news channels and the news cycles are really really rapid um so our people's memories uh stories that don't stay on if they, they're not plastered all over people forget about them um there's a lack of follow up now that the story was reported people who were aware of it earlier or people who searched her name show a lot of shock um they did not understand or know why a woman would be picked up a woman reporter there're a lot of people who have a lot of people uh, who come on new to twitter or people who have joined twitter in pakistan the most important uh, mode of communication for them uh, which is differentiates them from why they have twitter and not facebook is that they can communicate with policy makers so a lot of them have been tagging policy makers and asking them why this has not been taken up in the senate why has it not been taken up in the national assembly on the other end even well meaning individuals are very shocked they're like you know are we sure that this is the intelligence agencies you know could this be somebody else could it be anybody else doing this why is it not investigated but overall the crux is that why is there no information about shazadi why have we not found out more details about what has happened to her and how do we know if she's still alive and her family deserves to know the truth thanks for joining us sana
Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that's a wrap. This is Lauren. And Sahar. A big, big thank you to all our authors, translators, and editors who helped make this episode possible. In this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Please Listen Carefully by Jazer, Orange Juicer by Pottington Bear, Analog by John Luke Hefferman, Giga Lounge by Gigaboy, Dancing on the Edge by Kai Engel, and WTS by Corey Gray. Thanks for tuning in to The Week That Was at Global Voices. You'll hear our voices again in two weeks.